Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg katz i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today in the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i talked to joey ramone's brother mickey lee about life growing up with the punk rocker and later on, Greg and I will review the new records by the modern-day supergroup Gorillas and indie rockers The Besnerd Lakes. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Lil Wayne, the multi-million selling rap star who began serving a one-year jail term last week in New York. Uh, Rikers Island, of all places, one of the most notorious prisons in the entire country. Unprecedented, I think, Jim, that uh, Lil Wayne has begun serving a one-year jail term for gun possession. I cannot think of a single rap or rock performer of his magnitude that is serving a prison sentence at the height of his career. You could say that maybe the rapper T.I., who also served a one-year jail term for gun possession charges a year ago, was in a similar plane. But I think Lil Wayne's in a class by himself. I mean, we're talking about, you know, level of Elvis or the Beatles at the height of their fame going to jail. What a weird trip it has been for Lil Wayne in the last year. After he was arrested on these gun possession charges, pleaded guilty, admitted that he had possession of this gun, and is going to Rikers Island, which is a godforsaken place for uh, anyone, let alone someone of this magnitude. A few weeks ago, when he was about to go to jail, he said, no, no, wait a minute, let me have dental surgery. i got to have my diamond-encrusted teeth removed <laughs> because this may make me a target yeah. for a mugging in jail. So he had the diamonds replaced with gold. Then last week, when he was going to the jailhouse, the place went up in flames, so they had to delay the sentence yet again. The courthouse. Yes, the courthouse. And then uh, finally began the sentence last week, vowing to continue working on his music while in Rikers. With any luck, with good behavior, he can get out in eight months. You know, it's interesting, Greg. I mean, he had the gun on his tour bus. He was not brandishing it. It's hard to imagine in a world where, like, Jeff Skilling of mm. Enron and Lord Conrad Black, the press baron, are in these white-collar country club prisons, that Wayne deserves to go to the yeah. hellhole that is Rikers Island. You have to suspect, A, he's targeted because he's a rapper, B, he's targeted because he's famous and wealthy, and C, because he's black. That is a song called Someday I Will Treat You Good by Sparklehorse. 
which throughout its career was essentially a one-man band, Mark Linkus. That was his breakthrough hit in 1996, a modern rock hit from the first Sparkle Horse album, Viva Dixie Submarine Transmission Plot. Greg, the last time I interviewed Mark Linkus, Sparkle Horse, the singer-songwriter was talking really emotionally and directly to me, this is 2007, about having suffered a deep and dark depression. His last album, Dreamt for Light Years in the Belly of a Mountain, was delayed for five years because he was fighting this this mental illness. He told me, I'm not saying I'm safe now, that I might never be depressed again, but it's not as dangerous as it was. There's a great line in that show, Deadwood, of HBO, where Calamity Jane says, every day you have to figure out how to live all over again. Well, that's how I feel. Tragically, Linkus shot himself to death in the heart on March 6th in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was 47 years old. Sparkle Horse has an incredibly rich discography. Southern Gothic. Mm-hmm. You know, it is the dark, mysterious end of alternative country. It was a consistent sound that he explored over several albums, and it won him a tremendous following, not only of fans, but of other artists who worship this guy. Tom Waits worked with him. Tom yes. Waits doesn't work with anybody right. else, right? Stephen Drozd of the Flaming Lips recorded a lot with him, and Danger Mouse, the superstar producer who is half of Gnarls Barkley. In fact, Danger Mouse, Brian Burton, and uh, David Lynch, the film director, were collaborating on this multimedia project called Dark Knight of the Soul, which was delayed in its release because Danger Mouse's label said, you, you can't put this out. It floated on the net, and there was all sorts of legal wrangles. That was finally going to be coming out within the next couple of months. And I know that back in 2007, Linkus was excited about that project. There apparently is a new Sparkle Horse album, which is nine-tenths completed. He was in Knoxville because he was uh, setting up a home studio where he was going to finish work on that album. Obviously, the music world has lost a great talent, and we just wanted to pay homage to him. This is a track from that Dark Night of the Soul collaboration with Danger Mouse and Mark Linkus and David Lynch. Talk about tragic ironies. This is a track that actually features another great uh, Southern songwriter, Vic Chestnut, Mm -hmm. who committed suicide earlier this year. It's a song called Grim Augury on Sound Opinions. Both our families are togethering. We're cutting a baby out with my grandmother's heirloom. The antler handle carving knives. They were under her grand chandelier. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the classic track, We're a Happy Family, by the Ramones. In fact, Greg, it is now fairly well known that the Ramones, as a band, were not a happy family. Mm -hmm. And Joey Ramone, the lead singer, uh, did not have a very easy family background. His brother, Mickey Lee, was a musician from an early age. In fact, he was the first one from that whole circle of friends to play in a band with John Cummings and uh, Tommy Erdely, later Johnny Ramone and Tommy Ramone. Mickey would go on to form Birdland with the great late rock critic Lester Bangs, and then he had a band called The Rattlers, but he also worked as a roadie for his brother's group, The Ramones. He had a front row seat, in other words, to one of the most fascinating bands in the history of rock and roll, and certainly one of the most important figures in his brother, Joey. Yes, Jim, Mickey Lee has a new book called I Slept with Joey Ramone, a little bit tongue-in-cheek on the title, but it's literally true. I mean, he grew up with Joey Ramone. Mickey had insight into his brother's personality that is unparalleled and basically pours it out in this book. When you think about the Ramones, you look at those four individuals who formed that band, and you think they should never have done anything together, and yet they made this amazing music. They were so incompatible on so many levels. We know some of the backstories of Johnny Ramone and Dee Dee Ramone through their books and memoirs and through various films. Uh, Joey's background has been a little shadier. Mickey fills in the void quite a bit with this book, talking about the mental and physical illness that Joey Ramone dealt with throughout his life, obsessive-compulsive disorder, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, Rock and roll transformed his life. When he was on that stage, he was a new person, and it literally helped him live. It is a profoundly moving story on many levels and gives us great insight into why the Ramones were so meaningful for so many people and why Joey Ramone himself is one of the true rock heroes of the last 30, 40 years. Absolutely, Greg. Some people are thinking that this is a tawdry tell-all, but I really think it's an inspirational story about a guy whose life was saved by rock and roll. We have both Mickey Lee and Legs McNeil, his co-writer, who of course wrote the the classic punk rock oral history, Please Kill Me, and co-founded Punk Magazine. Mickey, welcome to Sound Opinions. It's great to see you again, Jim. It's been, uh, I don't know, a decade. About 10 years. We we worked together when I wrote that Lester Bangs biography. You were in a band with Lester. Legs, it's also an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Jim. It's great to see you again, too. What we want to talk about is the salaciously titled I Slept with Joey Ramone (laughs) and Mickey Lee, Indeed You Did, under the covers, and he snored. Every chance I got. uh, The story about when I would get scared at night and uh, see movies like The Crawling Eye, Invaders from Mars, and (laughs) be worried about the monsters under my bed. And, uh, you know, typical little brother thing does, you know, help me. And and my brother would say, come on, sleep here, you'll be safe. And so you would um, crawl into bed with your big brother. It's probably hard for a lot of people who know what Joe Ramon looks like to imagine a two-year-old child sleeping with him, but it was a different look. Did you come up with that title, Legs? No. Uh, actually, I wanted to call it Waiting for Joe Ramon after the uh, great Samuel Beckett play, Waiting for Godot, mm-hmm. but, uh, because we were always waiting for Joey because of his OCD, but uh, Mickey shot me down. It's built a family memoir, and it really is a story as much about the person, this, this older brother that you grew up with, as much as the rock star that most people know about, the lead singer in the Ramones. Was there a moment, though, Mickey, where you felt like, you know, there, there's a part of my family history, it's not necessarily a pretty story. It's an honest, sincere story, but there, there are elements of this story where you go pretty deep. Was there ever a point where you felt like there were things that were off limits or that you didn't want to go into? Was it difficult for you to, to go there? Well, yes, it's true. This is not a fairy tale. And it wasn't meant to be. There were points I got to where I, I thought I, I should stop here, and, and I did. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's things that I did not put in this book that were probably could be far more embarrassing than the things that are in there. And I don't think I divulged that much that anybody didn't really know what um, – that the Ramones had the emotional uh, problems. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got a guy singing about teenage lobotomy, give me shock treatment, uh, you know, psychotherapy, so psychotherapy, yeah. or that they sometimes engaged in some physical uh, activities with their uh, with their girlfriends. But I think the casual Ramones fans might have taken those songs as they were joking about it. It was almost it was almost a comic book. It had nothing to do with reality. And in fact, what your book says is that. Every one of these songs was rooted in some kind of real-life experience, it seemed like. Well, there was a lot of mental illness to pick from out of the four guys. <laughs> Dee Dee, Joey, Johnny, and, well, t- not so much Tommy, but out of the other three guys, I mean, there was, you know, a myriad of... Well, that's why of, Tommy left. Yeah, <laughs> right. A, a myriad of mental illnesses to uh, choose from. 
it gave the group a lot of creative uh, energy for a long time and made some great, popular, classic American pop songs. I mean, they were having fun with themselves also. It was, yeah. you know, it's black humor, but it's it's based, as all most legends are, in... In fact. In some kind of fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Beat on the Brat, walking out of Thornycroft, and the, the kids staring at Joey and looking at him. You know, Joey said he just wanted to beat him over the head with a baseball bat. Beat on the Brat, beat on the Brat, beat on the Brat with a baseball bat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely poetic license yeah. taken there. Yeah. I mean, he, my, my brother did not actually go beating on... Uh, on you or any other younger... <laughs> well, we beat on me. We, we beat on each other. Yeah. You know, yeah. But he just said they were so bratty. He wanted to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Uh, shine some light on the subtext of some of these songs. The subject matter was often a lot darker than anybody would think. I mean, Johnny Ramone, you know, John Cummings, had what seemed to be a pretty deep interest in Nazism. There were Nazi references in a number of the early songs, Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World, Blitzkrieg Bop, of course, and you and your brother, Mitchell and Jeffrey Hyman, came from a Jewish family. How did you feel about that? I didn't take it seriously, and Didi was kind of into the Nazi thing also, being, yeah. uh, you know, growing up in Germany, but I looked at it more like as a Mel Brooks song, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Springtime. Yeah, I, you know, that's Germany. how I thought of, of that stuff. But the main song I think you're talking about, the Today You Love, Tomorrow the World, yeah. there's a little German boy in a German town, little German being pushed around. I thought he kind of summed up beautifully what the, the mindset of, of kids in Germany they had to join the gang or get beaten up by the gang. got them their edge and that's what made them uh, unique. Well, there has been a lot written about the Ramones, obviously, and some of some of the best stuff by Legs McNeil and Please Kill Me and, and of course actually going back to Punk Magazine. But the thing I think, Mickey, that you and Legs did with this book, I Slept With Joe Ramone, in addition to the personal stuff, it really does show how this magical formula came together. There's a certain kind of humor that was unique to this little group of outcast misfits in Forest Hills and how that humor developed, it was a natural development and uh, just brought a, a group of outcasts together in the neighborhood. to continue our conversation with Mickey Lee and Legs McNeil in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, we'll have new music reviews and my Desert Island jukebox picks.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis and our guests Mickey Lee and Punk Magazine co-founder Legs McNeil. Their new book, I Slept with Joey Ramone, a family memoir, is an account of Mickey's life with his big brother Joey, lead singer of the Ramones. It talks about many of Joey's struggles with substance abuse, mental illness. But, uh, Mickey, I'd love for you to talk about the musical influences that you and your brother had. You talk about going through a hippie phase at one point. So how did Joey evolve from this hippie to this six-foot, eight-inch-tall glam rocker in, uh, in, uh-huh. in, in high heels, you know? You know, uh, because we, everybody was kind of becoming just a little disenchanted with the hippie thing mm-hmm. by that point, 72, 73. And then he got into... Uh, David Bowie and Lou Reed and the whole Transformer thing. And then Alice, Alice Cooper, Cooper was, was instrumental. Know. So the the music uh, that we were listening to at that time, I guess, made it easy for the, a transition like that to happen. Mm-hmm. So how did you get access to different music? I mean, you had to be pretty in the know to hear anything relatively avant-garde. So how did you discover new records? I got an album called Zapped. I was very mm-hmm. heavily into Frank Zappa, right? And on his... Um, Burnt Weenie Sandwich album. There was a thing on the insert where you could send away, send Frank $2 and he'll send you an album called Zapped. Mm-hmm. And on this album was uh, a compilation of bands that Zappa either discovered or had been or had formed himself, like the GTOs and the Mothers of Invention. And then also on there, there was Lord Buckley and Wildman Fisher and, yeah. and somebody named Alice Cooper. Mickey, a lot of folks might not know this, but you were actually a more accomplished musician than any of the Ramones. It made sense that when they started to take off, they needed somebody to keep their guitars in tune. You wound up working as their roadie, and it was a you know, great chance to get out of Queens and, and go to London. Right. That famous first trip over to the U.K., the first Ramones show, July 4th, 1976, where the entire, what would become the entire English punk scene is in attendance, having their minds blown by your brother's band, what was that like to be there? It was it was surreal. We didn't know what to expect. I think Punk Magazine had two issues out three, at that point. Three, three, three yeah, because Joey music. was on the. Joey came out, with and there was this whole uh, you know dispute of where it started. Was it started by in New York City with the Ramones or the Sex Pistols? And but and it, they were just starting off, so they thought they had to out punk the New Yorkers. Right. I think they all thought we we were in gangs and stuff, so they had to act tough in front of the Ramones. And Mickey d- describes this great scene of, you know, walking, I-, I think it's in the back alley of the Roundhouse or um, maybe at the... the uh, Dingwalls. Dingwalls, thank yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was, uh, first of all, we'd pull up to, the first show was at the Roundhouse and, and the Ramones were opening up for the uh, Flaming Groovies that time. We pull up there and it's like a scene out of Lord of the Flies. I, mean, <laughs> I really did expect them to start chanting, kill the pig. You know? yeah. um, so, you know, these kids in uh, with safety pins coming out of their um, And spiky hair, and, right? Um, Chopped up spiky hair. Yeah, they somehow seem to gear their fashion look more towards Richard Helen and the, and the Voidoids with all kinds of uh, T-shirts fastened together with safety pins. Very violent style of dress. And people forget this. You look at CBGB's photos from 76, 77, and it still looks like a bunch of like long-haired hippies, really, right. the audience. Yeah. It, that, that wasn't a fashion movement in New York. Exactly. So then we get over to England, and it's a total different thing. And they wanted to be, they, they wanted to be punk. They wanted to be angry. They wanted us to in, intimidate us. Mm-hmm. So we, we get out of the cab to, uh, to go to Dingwalls, and, and there was like a gauntlet they formed. They're trying to scare us, and one guy says, you want a mouthful of hair? Uh, and uh, didn't quite know what a mouthful of hair meant at yeah. that time, so I just said, what flavor? <laughs> and, uh, it seemed to work. It seemed to work. Yeah. You know, th- I guess that's what they were looking for, was for some kind of confrontation, but for us not to show any fear. Right. You know? And he meant he was going to headbutt you. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So how did the band react to this environment? There was clearly a lot of electricity. You could tell that they were fans, Mm -hmm. but they didn't want to act like fans. It was more of a challenge, and it was probably a good thing because 
it was a good thing for creativity. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the Clash, the Sex Pistols, uh, the Damned. Who else were the Stranglers? The Stranglers. Um, that yeah. was in the Gauntlet at Dingwalls. Well, the only ones that actually approached us were Mick Jones and and Joe Strummer oh, from the Clash. That's right. And they said, you know, we're the Clash, and we're going to be bigger than the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. And they were very competitive there, much more competitive than you know the scene at CBGBs. It was more about the, just having fun there. I think one of the things that people forget in romanticizing the Ramones, punk was always a movement that was about, here we are, warts and all, honesty, and yet kids today still build up you know, the Ramones. Right. Is, it's the mythology, mythology thing. Yeah, yeah. They, they mythologize everything. Absolutely. Yes. But, you know, you point out you, your brother and the Ramones wanted to be successful, and they couldn't understand stuff like when Sire Records came to them and said, I don't know if we can put this song, Carbona, not Glue, on the album. You know, it's a really catchy tune, and it could be a hit, but, you know, Carbona's trademarked. It is kind of, a, what is it, a floor cleaning liquid? You know, and it, Ramones are talking about it's more fun to get high on this floor cleaning stuff than it is to get high on glue. <laughs> and the Ramones were, you know, you have a scene, they're, they're kind of crestfallen. They hadn't thought about, well, what do you mean? It can't be a hit because they won't play it on radio? As if somebody was going to play a song about getting high. On- I, I, I thought I, they I were. I must admit that that mindset bewilders me to this day. Yeah. Because and and and, and legs. <laughs> we <laughs> I had mean, this legs, legs gave me a great line. Yeah. You know, because he, he thought I thought it was the most radio friendly song I'd ever heard in my because right. it's just so sna- it's so Beach Boyish. Go on and Yeah, it's TV's fault. Right. Why am this way? Yeah. Mom and Pop wanna put me away. From <laughs> I'm not sorry for the things I do. <laughs> my brain is stuck from, from shooting glue. If he thought uh, Carbone and Not Glue or Gimme Shock Treatment was going to knock You Light Up My Life off the charts. Which was the contemporary competition. Right. You know, you pick up on the darkness underneath the humor and you realize the reality of it in some ways. I think there was a certain naivety involved and a certain maybe just dumb innocence on uh, the parts of... I think the, they were just having fun and they just wanted to write songs that they liked. They were. You know? Yeah, but there was a turning point. <laughs> I mean, I, I maintain that the whole thing in New York where Sheena is a punk rocker, fourth album, right? Your brother writes it. And you would have thought that if there was going to be a moment where a great, perfect pop song would encapsulate this new youth movement, but it had all the elements, right? Well, you punk know? rock still had a certain connotation to it at that point. And, and then all of a sudden, during that point, the Sex Pistols come along. That's yeah. why it had that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but well, I think, it had it also I, think from, uh, I think she had the Sex Pistols not existed. I think Sheena might have had a bigger chance to go commercial. I, I, I agree. You know, and then the Sex yeah. Pistols came along and destroyed everything, which I knew because I was in, I was with the Ramones in the West Coast in '77, and I got a phone call from John Holmstrom saying I had to go on the sex I had to meet them in San Francisco for the last tour of the Sex Pistols. He's doing Punk Magazine yes, with he you. Yes, he was doing and- yeah. Trust me, telling Joey that I had to go see the Sex Pistols was probably the you know one of the worst days of my life cuz he never forgave me. You're going mm-hmm. to the enemy camp. Yes, you're going to the <laughs> enemy camp. Yeah. Legs and his new best friends, the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> oh great. They were Here com- we go. they were competitive as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, there is that element. When one of the Ramones had a grudge against you, it was like a blood feud, John in particular. And, of course, now it's it's well-known. I think it still dismays and shocks those of us who love this band and uh, and those of us who got close. I mean, I interviewed your brother any number of times. I interviewed John any number of times. Mm-hmm. If you were talking about baseball or horror movies, he was a pleasant guy. Yeah, sure. But they despised each other for that whole last 15, 20 years. Yeah. They each had their corner of the dressing room. They wouldn't talk. They had started out laughing at these bands like Yes or Genesis or Pink Floyd where everybody arrived in a separate jet right. and then left immediately. And yet they became that. Yeah, but I also think they became that out of frustration because the Ramones during the 80s, no one wanted to hear from the Ramones. They weren't selling any records. They weren't getting any respect. And they were really just making it by selling T-shirts and doing live gigs. And they'd have yeah. to tour 300 days out of the year. And you don't have a jet, and you don't go home with a big pile of money. Well, why at that point keep the band together? 
if if they so disliked each other and the commercial success wasn't there. I think if they would have broke up the band, we we would have had nothing to do on weekends anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it was business. I mean, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but um, they all realized. There was not much else these guys could do, especially at that point. They seemed so suited to each other. You couldn't envision Johnny in another band right? because this was so much of his vision and in Joey's vision, and you take those parts out of it, and how would they have done on their own? Right. It was it was really these this group of people together. We're talking with uh, Mickey Lee and Legs McNeil about I Slept with Joey Ramone, a family memoir. I want to get back to this transformational element with Joey because you talk about his insecurities, Mickey, as a kid. I mean, this kid was... Your brother was a screwed-up kind of guy, and yet... On stage, here's this rock star that people idolized. What was it about getting up on that stage with that microphone in his hand that made him a different person than he was in the rest of life? Anger. Anger, <laughs> adrenaline. Um, well, you know. Phil, Phil, said, Phil Sapienza, who was a psychotherapist. Your stepdad. Your, yeah. It was Mickey's stepdad, said when Joey was going through a really hard time when he was 18, 19, and got self-committed to uh, St. Vincent's, he had a lot of anger and stuff. And Phil said he took that anger and he put it on stage. And I think he really did that well. And he was exhausted after those shows. The thing I, you know, I give him so much credit for, and I'm so proud of him for, is, is overcoming that those insecurities and being able to put yourself up on a stage. I mean, they, the guy grew up so fast and so tall and skinny, and every kid in the neighborhood was pointing and laughing at him all the time. You know, so to take that and put yeah. yourself on a stage. Well, I and mean, to add takes the, a physical, lot of the physical mm-hmm. looks plus mm-hmm. the obsessive compulsive and any number, of, you know, he's, he's he's not a healthy kid, he's always sick, and yet he's a rock star. I mean, what would you rather have in the end? That hit single where you came and went, or the fact that now anybody, no matter what they look like or, or however they're challenged, thinks, maybe I can do it. Right. If Jerry Ramone did it, exactly. I can do it. That's the whole point of this book. Mickey Lee and Legs McNeil, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. If you'd like to give your critical opinion on Sound Opinions, leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll put it on the air. You can also email, interact at soundopinions.org, or connect to us on Facebook and Twitter. Fascinate me, picture and animate me, cause I'm rolling, heat holding, click clacking, crack a lacking, full packing, most stacking, agging the fool when I teach. Welcome to the world of the plastic beach. Yeah. Welcome to the world of the plastic beach. Mirror, mirror on the wall, boss dog, give it to us, get involved, turn it up. Speed it up, slow it up, underground buddy under us, undercut, shipped up, chipped out, swimming with the sharks with my gills up, turn the wheels up real tough, drinking lemonade in the shade, getting blazed with a gang of pilgrims. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Gorillas with a song called Welcome to the World of the Plastic Beach. It kind of sets the theme for Gorillas' album number three called Plastic Beach. The dulcet tones of Snoop Dogg heard on that track, as well as the hypnotic brass ensemble. 
Who or what are gorillas? Greg, I will go to the mattresses maintaining that Damon Albarn is one of the most talented and fascinating figures in popular music in the last 25 years. He is best known and will forever be best known as the leader of the Britpop heroes Blur. But their last album was Think Tank in 2003. And since then, he has had more projects than you can count. A whole lot of world beat globetrotting, Molly music, producing Amadou and Mariam. He had that awful, uh, awkwardly titled supergroup, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. But I think his most successful project, certainly in the United States, has been the postmodern Banana Splits, or what he prefers to call the virtual hip-hop group, Gorillas. <laughs> Essentially a collaboration between him and Jamie Tank Girl Hewlett, mm-hmm. uh, the cartoonist. They invented these four cartoon simians. They toured hiding behind screens, projections of these animated characters on stage, and have had a lot of guests in the studio as they made this kind of genre-blurring hip-hop that grabs grooves from all over the world and has lots of different guest stars appearing, like Snoop Dogg, like up top there. But still, you know, through it all, it's a particular Damon Albarn vision. It is the leader of Blur who is driving this project. The 2001 debut, self-titled, and 2005's Demon Days both yielded some super hits. Uh, Clint Eastwood, Feel Good Incorporated. Now it's time for album number three. I don't know how Damon has had time to breathe, let alone make another Gorillaz album in the midst of all that activity, but here it is. Plastic Beach, concept record about a floating island of trash. Let's hear a song and then give our opinions about the album. This is Super Fast Jellyfish featuring uh, De La Soul, who's collaborated with Gorillas in the past, and Griff Reese of Super Furry Animals on Sound Opinions. Are you kidding? Yo, pretty packages of frosted delights. Look, it comes with a toy. <laughs> I like that. I want a number four, number six, and throw in a plastic donut. Just enjoy the gritty crunch. It tastes just like chicken. Rappers of many bite sizes. Man, are you freaking blind? It's a rock. All mixed in the pot full. Mama's homemade from scratch. Well, not, not quite. quite. Toasted over flames. They be tasting quite, quite right. right. All hell King Neptune and his water breathers. No snail thing too quick for his water feeders. Don't waste time with your net. Our net worth is set. Ready, go. Many no others. What? We be the colors of the mad and the wicked. We be bad. We be brick it with the 24-hour sign. Shower mind habits while you dine like rabbits with the crunchy, crunchy carrots. Gotta have it super fast. The whole line of breakfast you got time for. Super fast, super fast, a criminal's. That is super fast at Jellyfish from the New Gorillas album Plastic Beach. As Jim mentioned, Della Soul and Griff Reese of uh, Super Furry Animals collaborating. This is what Damon Albarn has been doing in the last decade, Jim, is these unusual cross-generational, cross-genre collaborations. He has become something of a world music ambassador. Yeah. Traveling the globe, bringing people together that normally would never play together. Like a much more prolific Peter Gabriel. Indeed. And he's done a wonderful job with it. Some of it works less well than others. Gorillas is clearly the peak of those uh, collaborations. One thing about this record, on, on the previous two Gorillas records, he had collaborators, Dan the Automator on the first one and Danger Mouse on the second one that bought more of a pop production sheen to those projects. And you mentioned the hits, Clint Eastwood, Feel Good, Inc. There's nothing quite that accessible on this record. Albarn is pretty much running the show now. He's the main cog in this group. And I think he's framing this record as something of an ecology elegy, the last words of a dying planet. Yeah. You know? A heavy concept album from a group of cartoons. Exactly. So if you thought Demon Days was a dark record, the the previous Gorillaz record, this is darker still. And as a result, the mood is more anxious and dark and disturbing and and more low-key. And as a result, it may seem kind of disappointing and more hodgepodgey than those previous records. But I think it exudes kind of a chilled charm once you get through it a few times. And I love... 
the brilliance of a record that can make the Lebanese National Orchestra <laughs> and Lou Reed sound pieces of the same whole. Like you know? they belong together. Yeah. Bobby Womack, the soul legend, and then the guys from The Clash. I mean, it, it's nuts. Damon Albarn's a genius, uh, hands down. This is a, a dark record, but it is more of a beginning-to-end journey from start to finish, th- this space that only exists between your earbuds. i got to say, we great albums on Buy It, Burn It, Trash It. You're going with? I'm going with a buy it. A double buy it for uh, Gorilla's Plastic Beach. We're going to take a quick break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. But when we return, we're going to review the new album from Canadian indie rockers, The Besnard Lakes. And then it's my turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the Besnard Lakes from their new album, The Besnard Lakes Are the Roaring Night. And that track is called Like the Ocean, Like the Innocent, Part 2, The Innocent. That gives you a little hint about where this group is going <laughs> on this record. It is dense. It is epic. And There's uh, not one, but there's two two-part suites. Indeed. The Besnard Lakes are basically a duo from Montreal that has been fleshed out with various musicians over the years, Olga Gorias and Jace Lasik, a husband and wife team that have been working together since 2004. This is their third album. Their second album, their 2007 release, The Besnard Lakes Are the Dark Horse, was a breakthrough for them. Uh, got a lot of notice in the blogosphere. Began touring around the country to rave notices, an epic sound that is expanded further on this new record. We're going to review it in a minute, but let's play a track from it to give you a taste of what's going on here. It's a track called Albatross from the Besnard Lakes on Sound Opinions. Oh, 
That is Albatross from the Besnard Lakes' third album. The Besnard Lakes are the roaring night here on Sound Opinions. Greg, what I love about this Montreal band is that they are finding an unlikely middle ground between what people are calling more often beard rock, <laughs> that kind mm. of folky, back-to-nature indie sound that Bon Iver and Fleet Foxes champion, and the early 90s psychedelic music of shoegazers, such as My Bloody Valentine, Lush, and Ride. It's a big sound that this band likes to explore on very big songs, and this is their most epic album yet. Yet. Now, nothing here rocks as hard as uh, that wonderful song, Devastation, from the last album. They played it here live mm-hmm. when we had them in the studio a couple of years ago. But for anybody who appreciates a big canvas that is leisurely colored in with these muted twilight tones, hazy walls of guitar and whispered harmony vocals and sleepwalker rhythms. Uh, this is a gorgeous album that you could just lose yourself in forever. I got to say, buy it, burn it, trash. It's a buy it record. I think we need a new category, and that's wow. <laughs> I mean, I am just blown away by this record. I gave it three and a half out of four stars in the Chicago Tribune, and I'm probably pulling my punches a little bit. Yeah, know? I was thinking that, too. I gave it three and a half out you of know, four stars. You know, I'm thinking stars. this is as good a record as I've heard this year so yeah. far, and maybe in a good long while. I, I think it's just an amazing achievement. Olga Gurias and Jace Lasik need to be brought up into that upper pantheon of great collaborators. I mean, they co-wrote co-produced and basically played most of this record. It's an amazing achievement. You mentioned the My Bloody Valentine connection, that heavy guitar sound, the beard rock, yes. I'll add the Brian Wilson orchestral splendor. I think there's a lot of influences to the of that early 60s pop sound that mm-hmm. Brian Wilson and Phil Spector were doing. The one virtue on this record that is perhaps uh, brought out more than any other is the uh, virtue of patience. They let these songs evolve and develop, but there's never a sense of slackness. You're always going somewhere. You're waiting to see how the journey is going to end. They've got these two, three, four-part songs that always take you somewhere. You know, this could be progressive rock under another name, but it's it has none of the negatives that are associated with that term and all of the positives, that epic orchestral splendor. There's a great payoff at the end of every one of these songs. I love seeing you so excited. I love this record. So it's a uh, double buy Double buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we cannot live without today. Greg, what do you got? Thank you, Jim. Thinking a lot about Joey Ramone in this show powerful bringing back a lot of those memories because Joey Ramone's influence on my life has been pretty profound. I remember going to see a Ramones gig on their first tour back when I was in college and going to see the band right as they got off stage. They were breaking down their equipment and, you know, they didn't have any roadies back then. You know, Joey Ramone seen, you know, seeing our group at the show and putting his arm around me and said, you know, you can do it too, kid. And the next day I started my fanzine because of the inspiration that these guys gave us that, hey, if somebody like that can make great music and inspire people, Mm -hmm. you know, I can do it too. Joey Ramone's death at age 49 in 2001 of lymphoma was incredibly tragic and incredibly moving moment for a lot of people in my generation. But what people may not realize is that Joey was busy until the day he died. He was finishing up his own solo record, Don't Worry About Me, which is a great record. And he had just come off finishing a project by one of his heroes, Ronnie Spector. Joey Ramone, in addition to being a rock star, was also a huge rock fan. And what the Ramones basically were were these four guys channeling those three-minute pop singles that they loved so much that they grew up with in the 60s, the sound of Phil Spector and the Beach Boys and the Beatles into their own language. And Ronnie Spector in particular, with the Ronettes, with those big hits, Be My Baby, Baby I Love You, The Best Part of Breaking Up, Walking in the Rain, were a huge influence on Joey Ramone. He told me once that he wanted to sound like Ronnie Spector. He wanted to be the male answer to those great pop singles that Ronnie Spector sang. And he was able to pay her back in the late 90s when nobody was talking about Ronnie Spector anymore. He did an EP with her called She Talks to Rainbows. He was the producer. He 
chose the songs. One of the songs he chose brought him full circle. It was by one of his contemporaries, the New York Dolls guitarist Johnny Thunders, with You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory. Uh, Ronnie Spector does a great job with the song. Joey surrounds her with this great instrumentation, in particular this sighing guitar line that runs through the song that just adds this added layer of melancholy to it. I love it. Here it is, Ronnie Spector doing You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory, as produced by Joey Ramone on Sound Opinions. It doesn't pay to try All the smart girls know why It doesn't mean I didn't try I just never know why It's because I'm all alone Ooh, baby, you're not at home That is the incredible Ronnie Spector with You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory, a nice Desert Island jukebox choice, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Thanks, Jim. Synth pop is uh, everywhere these days. A lot of bands having great success using synthesizers as the key to their sound. We're going to go back to the roots of the movement in the early 80s on next week's show. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, whose favorite cartoon rock band is, of course, Gorillaz, and Robin Lynn, who is more of a gem and the holograms girl, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's old school. He's going with the Archies. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, Jim. Hi, Greg. This is Dave in Madison, Wisconsin, and I wanted to send a big thank you for your interview with A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips, the two movie critics. When I sat down with my uh, Guess the Winners card at the Oscars party, everybody else was grumbling about how am I supposed to pick best sound mixing and best 
sound editing. Well, having listened to the interview with uh, A.O. Scott, Michael Phillips, I knew that uh, the Hurt Locker was a pretty good bet for all things sound, and that was proven to be right. So for a little while, I looked like a genius. Thanks a lot, and keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Jim and Greg, this is Laura calling from Chicago about your music and movies show. Great idea. Really loved it. I thought it was a great topic for your show, and it really got me thinking about some of my favorite soundtracks, one of which was mentioned, which is Almost Famous. First of all, great movie. It's one of my favorite movies, but the soundtrack is really nothing more than just a collection of these amazing songs, but listening to all of them really evokes the same emotions that I feel whenever I watch the movie. And I think that that's what makes a really great soundtrack, when you can picture the scenes from which those songs play. Um, I also wanted to mention Shutter Island, just because it's fresh in my mind. I saw the movie last weekend. I really loved it. And I recently got the soundtrack, and it's got all of these terrific orchestral numbers that are just as creepy as the movie, if not more so. I mean, I had some serious trouble sleeping for a couple of nights. So I think there's nothing better than picking up a soundtrack to a movie that really just brings you right back to the theater. So those are my two cents. Love the show. Austin from Chicago. Uh, just listened to your show about radio, and I gotta say, how could you overlook the title track from Donald Fagan's debut 1981 masterpiece, The Nightfly? I mean, you're so bold as to dedicate five to ten minutes to Michael Stipe's mumbling, but you completely overlooked Fagan's immaculately produced smooth sound that created the digital standard for radio. I mean, how could you be so inconsiderate as to ignore the genius that is the Nightfly? <sighs> Keep up the good work. Love the show, but... <sighs> I'm last of the Nightfly. Hello, Baton Rouge. Won't you turn your radio down? Respect the seven seconds of This is Cheryl Eskridge, Wimberley, Texas, originally from good old Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I listened to your program on KUT, and I was standing in the bathroom putting my makeup on, and you put on the Donna Summer, heard, heard it on the radio, and I was back in Milwaukee disco dancing on Water Street. I was there. I was in the arms of some strange man having the time of my life that was one of our favorite songs that they played. Now, I'm a multi-generational music listener, but boy, when Donna Summer sang, it brought back flooding of memory. Thanks for playing great music, and uh, I hope the weather warms up in Chicago for you guys. Have a great day. But this No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.